There are two old church movies from the late 70s, early 80s that totally wreck me, even just thinking about them. One is The Mailbox, where the widow Lethe waits in vain for her family to send her a letter. And the other is Mr. Kruger's Christmas, where the also-widowed Will Kruger, played by Jimmy Stewart, sits in his lonely apartment with his cat George and daydreams about leading the Tabernacle Choir and visiting the manger. Maybe part of the reason we respond so emotionally to scenes like these is because we all understand loneliness at some level. Literally anyone can feel lonely or become isolated. Loneliness is as part of our human existence as hunger and thirst. Welcome to the Why Magazine podcast, bringing you ideas, stories, and voices from Brigham Young University. I'm Whitney Archibald, and the voice you heard in that intro belongs to Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad, a professor of psychology and neuroscience and the director of the Social Connection and Health Lab at BYU. Today we're going to talk to her about the power of social connections, the impact of loneliness and isolation on all other aspects of our health, risk factors, and what we can do to improve our social connections. This episode is an update based on an article in the summer 2020 issue of Y Magazine called Loneliness, the Shadow Pandemic by Melody McGrath Warnick. If there are other articles you'd like us to revisit or other professors, alumni, or students you'd love to hear from on the podcast, let us know in our listener survey, which is linked in the show notes. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad today. She's been featured in Time Magazine, The New York Times, Fast Company, NPR, and all sorts of other media for her research on the impact of loneliness. She was also the lead scientific editor for the U.S. Surgeon General's Advisory on the Healing Effects of Social Connection and Community, released in 2023, which was a pretty big deal, establishing a national framework for social connection. We'll link to that document in the show notes. I started my conversation with Holt Lundstad by asking her how she became an expert on loneliness in the first place. I loved the nuance of her response. Well, it's funny you say that because in a way, I don't feel like loneliness is the focus of my research. (laughs) Um, I mean, I really focus on the protective effects of being socially connected. And along with that, of course, I study the risks associated with lacking social connection, which includes loneliness, social isolation, poor quality relationships, you know, all the ways that we could potentially lack social connection as well. And so I think what is surprising is that's the part that has garnered so much attention. Where do you think that interest comes from? Well, I think it's in part related to the pandemic because, of course, we all had this shared experience. We all felt very acutely what it's like to be isolated, to long for more connection than than we were getting. And so it made it more accessible to talk about because I think for far too long, loneliness has been associated with stigma and shame. This idea that if I'm lonely, there must be something wrong with me, right? But the pandemic was clearly driven by something external. right? Um, And so it gave us permission to talk about it. (laughs) But of course, people have been feeling lonely long before the pandemic and are continuing to feel lonely. And so I think that just helped with not only raising our awareness, Because 
You know, it, it's like so many things in life. You really don't appreciate what really matters until <laughs> until it's taken away, right? right? And so we start to really recognize just how important our social connections are when we don't have access to them. Yes, and it must have been so interesting from your perspective as somebody who's studied social connection for so long to have this like experiment, like this case study not something anybody would have wished for or or hoped for, but you had this great experiment. <laughs> well, it was kind of crazy because I had just served on a National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine consensus committee on the medical relevance of isolation and loneliness. Oh. And we had been working on it for two years. And the release of this report was February 27th. No way. <laughs> oh my so God. literally two weeks before. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, all when it was kind of brewing. And um, but but it was two weeks before the World Health Organization declared this pandemic. And it was this really odd experience of what we thought our message was going to be was everyone needs to connect more. And then suddenly we're getting this message of everyone needs to isolate. Right. Oh, wait, you can't. <laughs> um, and so then it was this huge pivot of what can we do to stay connected? And then it, as it dragged on, shift to, okay, how long can we handle this? Yeah. And what, what, what are going to be the consequences of this? Yes. And what do you think we learned from the pandemic? I mean, so much, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but there's also so much we don't know still, um, which is kind of crazy. But uh, the, I think some of the lessons that we learned were first, you know, I think a lot of people started shifting their priorities and, and I hope um, recognizing just how important their connections are. Another lesson was that not all sources of isolation and loneliness come from internal sources. We, we know this from research that, you know, the built environment can influence how isolated people are, how safe a neighborhood is can influence that. So all sorts of external sources can be underlying causes that, that are outside an individual's control. But I think because loneliness feels so personal, it has been viewed as a personal issue mm. and perhaps uh, unfortunately also viewed as a private matter that maybe isn't you know meant to be solved by organizations or even government right yeah. but but at the same time we also learn the lesson of how policy can influence this so as we all had to limit our social contact a big lesson we learned is how relevant social contact is to every aspect of our life. Seriously, I mean, you think about it, right? Yeah. It affected how we work. It affected, you know, the education system. It affected transportation. It affected how we shop, how we get our entertainment. Um, it affected every aspect of our life. And so what I think a huge lesson from that is, is that Every sector of society is relevant to how socially connected we are. And those can be sources of 
barriers or they can be potential solutions also of of where we can intervene to try and create a more socially connected society. Yeah, well, it almost feels like where we were, you know, a decade or two decades ago about mental health, like like it was kind of stigmatized and not talked about. And now I feel like that's just part of our everyday vernacular. We talk about our mental health. I wonder if social health will get to that point. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because we can think of our, you know, physical health, cognitive health, mental health, emotional health, uh, and social health. And in some ways we can think about social health as how, how well we are doing socially, but of course our social health impacts all of those other health outcomes as well. Yes. What are some of those physiological effects and how else does it affect our health? It really stems from the premise that, of course, humans are essentially social beings. And so we, you know, I'm using this term loosely, but (laughs) that we are biologically wired uh, for social connection. So humans throughout human history have needed others to rely on for survival. And so neuroscientists have found evidence of some of these biological pathways that seem to explain how this, you know, is an adaptive process. You know, throughout history, if you're alone, survival is really yeah. hard. Or, or if, you, if you've been excluded from the group, that is a very vulnerable place to be, right? So when we lack proximity to others or trusted others, we see that our brains is more metabolic resources. And so our brains need to be more active, not only to be vigilant to threats in our environment, but of course, just to meet the challenges of of everyday life on our own. And often this can lead to dysregulation. Uh And when these systems become dysregulated, that is linked to an increased risk for a number of chronic physical illnesses, including uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes. It's linked to cognitive health outcomes such as dementia. And it's also linked to mental health outcomes such as depression. And so this dysregulation over time can lead us to be at greater risk for all all these chronic illnesses. Yeah, that's quite a list. Okay. Is there a specific demographic that's more at risk than others? Well, so it's important to note that literally anyone can feel lonely or become isolated. And because we're social beings, loneliness is as part of our human existence as hunger and thirst. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, it's argued that loneliness is a biological drive that motivates us to seek out a biological need, the need to connect, just like hunger motivates us to seek out food. Interesting. And so from that standpoint, it's a normal part of human existence. So everyone feels lonely from time to time. That's, that's just part of being human. Yeah. It's like a signal, Um, right? (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Uh, But there are some people that unfortunately seem to get stuck in loneliness. Mm. That could potentially happen to anyone. 
However, there are certain groups that this seems to be more prevalent in. And so we see, to some extent, older adults. But I should note that for far too long, this was assumed to be only an older adult issue. And many recent surveys are now showing that the highest prevalence rates are among adolescents and young adults. And so, so in terms of age groups... We are seeing it much younger. And then, of course, there are some other kinds of factors, such as people who experience chronic conditions, both physical and mental health conditions, that, you know, these kinds of conditions can be isolating. And so that can increase risk for for loneliness. Uh, Another risk factor is living alone, uh, as well as struggling financially, which makes sense if you are, you know, working long hours, trying to make ends meet, you may not have time to socialize, you may not have time to do the kinds of leisurely activities where you might meet people or maintain relationships. And and so people who are struggling financially tend to be at increased risk for isolation and loneliness as well. Oh, that yeah, that makes sense. What have been some of the things that have surprised you about your research? There seems to be a very strong acceptance of the importance of loneliness, but I regularly see people dismissing the importance of isolation. Mm. And when I say the importance, I mean the not the negative effects. Uh, the negative effects. <laughs> yeah. Correct. And so there seems to be this perception that if you choose to be alone and don't feel lonely, then it's okay. Uh-huh. That 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 wouldn't be associated with any kind of risk. Okay. And and I think that is due in part to an increasing emphasis on, of course, personal autonomy and choice, but also a lot of interest in, you know, introversion versus extroversion. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we actually have evidence that that introverts get lonely too. <laughs> um, and in fact, there's some data to suggest that, that um, both isolation and loneliness may be higher among those that are introverted. But this idea that if I'm, I'm choosing to be alone, there's no risk. And we've come up with lots of tools to be able to do our work remotely, right? right. Uh, to get all of our entertainment from home to do our shopping from home. (laughs) And it's interesting because in a lot of ways, these things are really convenient. It makes life easy and comfortable. And so then it feels like it's more work to go out. And I worry that as a society, because we've made it so easy and comfortable and convenient, that we're going to spend less time in our communities and less time socializing because we've made it so convenient. Right. We've normalized Uh, it. Yes. Yes. And, and that there may be the perception that it's okay because if we feel comfortable and we don't feel lonely, even though we are isolated, 
the, that somehow we won't be at risk. And I, I should say that we have quite a bit of evidence that the objective risks of being isolated are not only a significant risk for premature mortality, but other kinds of chronic illnesses independent of whether we feel lonely. And so we really need to keep them both as important and not just use loneliness as the gold standard, because even if we don't feel lonely, that that could still uh, convey risk. Right. Comfortable doesn't mean healthy. That's so interesting. Oh, I mean, think about <laughs> yeah, it. I, I it mean, usually we doesn't. Pleasure, yeah. <laughs> we take pleasure in so many things that are not healthy <laughs> right. for us. Oh, so true. Uh, well, and, you know, some things that are good for us are, you know, uncomfortable or yeah. we, we don't like the way it tastes or <laughs> whatever, right? right? Yeah. Uh, so just because it, it makes us a little uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's not good for us. And just because we like it doesn't mean it is good for us. <laughs> that is so true. Um, I love the fact that on this podcast, we get to dig a little deeper than maybe some of the more secular podcasts that you've done. Um, we can talk about some of the spiritual impacts of loneliness and, and social connection. What have you learned about this aspect? There's so much evidence around belonging to a faith-based community. Yeah. And not only just having a consistent group that you participate in, (laughs) but that you have shared values, that you have a place where you feel like you belong. You have a source of support, not only among others in that group, so whether that is, you know, your, your ward or your, your congregation, but that there's a sense of feeling part of something bigger and a source of support through God, through yeah. a higher power. And yet we are seeing such declines in religious participation and it's also the sort of thing that you can't put in a policy recommendation, right. you know, go join a religion, um, <laughs> especially, you know, with such a uh, separation between church and state. Right. Um, and yet the majority of the world's population belongs to some kind of, of religion or, or faith-based community. And these are really important sources of support. And, you know, I think about, even my own involvement and how it brings me closer to my community. There are so many people in my community and my neighborhood that I wouldn't know had it not been through church. It exposes me to different people that have different perspectives than me, which is a huge source of isolation that we see nationally is that more and more people are not engaging with people of different backgrounds than themselves. So different political views, different economic backgrounds, but church and faith brings us together across these kinds of different backgrounds so that we can also find our common humanity. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and I've been thinking about programs like ministering and the service-oriented goals of the church and how much that benefits us. 
Oh, yeah, there's so much evidence on the importance of of service and volunteering. So I'm just thinking even uh, the, the whole literature on social support, uh, it, it's interesting because we would think that receiving support it would be far more beneficial than than providing it but but actually the opposite is true wow uh, and in fact we find that providing support in many cases can can exceed the benefits of of even receiving support and so finding ways to serve and there are so many opportunities to serve, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll never <laughs> and, run out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's so funny because I think sometimes, you know, we we may think, oh, could they not just hire someone to clean the church? <laughs> <laughs> but but there's there's so many ways to serve people in your community, to serve and to serve even globally. Yeah. Uh, and whether that's through missionary work or humanitarian service or donations, there's so many opportunities to serve our time, our resources. And that not only just the act of helping others helps ourselves, but in the process, we're often volunteering or serving side by side with others. Right. And that's an opportunity to get to know other people, to build on relationships that that perhaps were not as strong as as they could be but helps build those bonds over time yeah and shared so experience it's, it's a huge yeah huge opportunity that's great so it, this makes me think about just general social hygiene if you were to give us some guidelines about how to maintain a healthy level of social connections what would you suggest yeah. Uh, so I actually published a paper not too long ago on establishing national health guidelines for social connection, just like we have, you know, dietary guidelines and guidelines for physical activity and sleep, because I'm constantly being asked things like, well, what's the equivalent of five fruits and vegetables a day or, or you know, 10,000 steps? Uh, what's what's <laughs> right. the social equivalent? What, what are we supposed to be aiming for? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll get questions about, well, how, how many friends do I need for, <laughs> for benefit, <laughs> give right? Give me a number. <laughs> uh, give me a number, right? And first off, I should just say, you know, there's no magic number. Right. But we do have very strong evidence that, you know, complete isolation is very bad for you. So Makes sense. So at least one is better than none. <laughs> but we also have evidence that that we, we need more than one. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, some evidence suggests that somewhere between around four to six is what seems to have been shown to have various health outcomes. So that seems to be about adequate. Some studies suggest that more than six is, is optimal. Other studies show that it kind of levels off after six. So that's a little bit less definitive. <laughs> But but generally, I would say bare minimum, you need a couple to be adequate. You want around four to six and then uh, more than six may be optimal. So then I am asked, well, how frequently should we be interacting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, you know, complete isolation has been associated with 
bad effects. So, so never is some, not the answer. <laughs> right. Never is, never will put you at risk. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what seems to be played out in the evidence is that adequate would be we need daily interaction with others. And optimal would be more than daily. Mm. So having, you know, having more than one interaction per day would be, would be better. We also have evidence that just like, you know, having a variety of fruits and vegetables because they give you different kinds of nutrients is, is helpful, that having a variety of different kinds of relationships is helpful as well because um, different kinds of relationships can fulfill different kinds of needs, whether it's who, who to go to for advice versus who you can count on for a favor versus who you might go to for physical affection. And not all relationships um, are, are equal. And you might go to different kinds of relationships for, for different kinds of needs. Right. And, and so we need a, a variety of different kinds of relationships in our lives. And then I would also say that just like our dietary guidelines encourage us to limit high sugar foods and processed foods, that we ought to limit our interactions that are online. So try to have most of, of your interactions in person. Uh, not to say that you need to eliminate that, but but that it, sh- it should make up a small portion. <laughs> yeah. What makes you personally so passionate about social connection? You know, I think it's because it has been something that has been so under-recognized for so long. And yet it's so fundamental to every aspect of our lives and so fundamental to our well-being. It, it's like I want to shout from the rooftops. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that this is so important. And it's so it, it's not important for just a small sector of society or uh, you know, just for for this particular group, it's important for everyone across the globe. It, it's a human issue. Thank you for listening to the Y Magazine podcast. This episode was based on an article in the summer 2020 issue of Y Magazine called Loneliness, the Shadow Pandemic by Melody McGrath Warnick. It was produced by me, Whitney Archibald, with executive producer Denya Palmer. Original music mixing and mastering by Jarrett Davis.